Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Good morning. My name is Tanya. This is my son, Dustin. If you're able, would you please join me in standing and as we read God's Word together. Hosea 3, 1 through 5, Hosea redeems his wife. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea 11, 4-11 I led them with cords of kindness, with fans of love, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria should be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call it the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up a reframe? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Can I make you like Modiah? How can I treat you like Zambim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am a God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling from birds, like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. May God bless this reading of this word. You may be seated. A couple years ago, I had a pretty alarming um, moment at, on the campus of USC where I was uh, with the student and just overheard some students talking, and one student just said, um, yeah, we're, we're going to be there uh, when they kill him. And uh, he's got a gun, and um, it's all planned out, and everything, it's going to be amazing. And then I found out there were film students who were planning a scene, <laughs> and everything was okay. Because context matters tremendously in life and what you're saying. And for the season of Advent, uh, Christians have long celebrated and sung songs and uh, written stories and reflected on scriptures about the coming of Christ. But the significance of it uh, really uh, becomes pregnant uh, when you put it in the context of how anticipatory the scriptures were for this. And what we're going to do through Advent is look at the prophets and how they anticipated the coming of Jesus so that you and I will be ready for it at Christmas. And this morning what we're going to do is begin with Hosea and understand uh, about the one who is to come by looking at Hosea's dysfunctional marriage. 
And here's what we'll learn about the coming of Christmas that will give us more context and, uh, and more anticipation for His coming at Christmas by learning three things. One, the nature of spirituality. Uh, two, the depth of betrayal. But three, the cost of redemption. Three things that Hosea will teach us from his dysfunctional marriage about the coming of Christmas. One, the nature of spirituality. So in chapter three, if you go back to that, here's what we're told uh, in verse one. The Lord says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Here's what he says, go love a woman, go get married to a woman who will not be faithful to you, who will not uh, stay with you in this marriage, who will go cheat on you multiple times and have children outside of your marriage. Go do this. Why? Because it will teach you about my relationship with Israel. He says, just as I've experienced this with Israel, Hosea, I want you to literally experience this with this woman, Gomer. And right away, what the scriptures are teaching us is that if you read the Old Testament, you cannot strictly understand God's relationship to his people so much as a God with a law in the people, or as a king in his people, or even a shepherd in sheep. But to really get to the depth of it, you have to understand a husband and a wife relationship. God is saying this, like, I want you to understand that my relationship with my people is so intimate and is so binding and is so personal that the only way that you can really understand me is if you see me as a bridegroom. So, for example, uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, uh, the prophet writes this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Now, what does this teach us about the nature of spirituality? Well, well two things. The, the, uh, the primacy and the power of spirituality. Look, when, when you get married... You have to give precedence to your spouse over everything. They get access to your life in a way that no one else does. Uh, you, you can't hide money. You can't have two lives. You can't do whatever you want sexually. Uh, you can't spend free times with however you want because this person who you have bound yourself to is to have a primacy in your life like no one else has ever had. Even your parents or your siblings before that, this person is meant to have access to your life in a way that no one else has. And God is saying, look, when you get into relationship with me, it's meant to be like that. I mean, I'm supposed to have access and primacy to a depth that no one else has in your life. E even if you struggle being open and vulnerable with close people around you, you cannot know me unless you begin to crack that wall. That in everything, he's saying, I've got to have full primacy. Um, I remember when I was in uh, high school, uh, we used to do this back in the day, like when we didn't have the internet. Um, I, I, uh, I wanted to make a, a, a birthday gift for my friend, and so um, there was a print shop down at the bottom of the mountain, and I took a CD cover, and I said, hey, can you print this and put it on a t-shirt? 
He said, absolutely. I said, make two. So I said, well, I'll get one for me and one for my best friend, Brad, because it's Brad's birthday coming up, and this will be a great gift. So he did it, and I came back two weeks later, and he said, okay, special washing instructions, which for a 16-year-old, you know, should have immediately been a bad idea. He said, you know, you have to wash it this way, dry it this way, and then it should come out. So I, I, I did exactly as he said, washed it this way, dry our cycle this particular way, and uh, one came out great, and the other came out ruined. And you know what I did? I said, oh man, Brad's t-shirt got ruined. <laughs> because in a friendship, it's always your friend's t-shirt, you know, that gets ruined. But in a marriage, you can't do that. You can't go, well, the first one was for me. Because you're so bound to somebody that there is no such thing that's yours that's not theirs. And God says, that's the kind of power that I want with my people. That's the kind of primacy that I want in a relationship with my people. But the nature of that is also a power. Isaiah 62.5, it says this, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons marry. And as a bridegroom, uh, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What God is saying there is, He says, the way that a bridegroom anticipates taking a bride on a honeymoon and longs for that day and looks forward to the time alone and the celebration and the personal connection, He says, that's how I think about my people. I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of power. And, he, you know, because when you get in that, that kind of a marriage, your spouse's opinion over you trumps everything. They have the ability to build you up and tear you down, encourage you, empower you, set you into new trails in a way that no one else can. I mean, if some of you come up and, and, and say, Alex, you know, you're so friendly or, or you're so helpful with this, like, that will be great, but there's a part of me that's like, you don't really know me. Um, and there's a part of you where it feels like I, I, I have this public relationship with you, and you can help me and encourage me, but in no way to the degree my wife can. If my wife, if she would, compliment me. Um, I'm kidding. Um, when she speaks to me that way, though, it carries a weight and a power that no one in this room holds. And God is saying, when you get into a relationship with me, that's the kind of weight I want in your life. That what I say trumps all of everyone else's opinions. What I say trumps even your own opinion of you. So that your identity and your purpose in this world is determined by our marriage. And here, here's the point of all of this. It's very normal today, and especially this time of the year, for a lot of people to be closed off to the church and closed off to religion per se, but very open to the idea of spirituality. That we get very curious with things going on in the culture, we get very curious with the songs on the radio, and open to wondering if there's more. I'll give you an example of this. Um, Becca Stevens, a woman who wrote this New York Times editorial a couple years ago, where she wrote this. I love Christmas, 
the concerts, the parties, the gifts, the service, but during the height of the season when it feels like spending and celebrating is a competitive social sport, a creeping feeling lurks that I've never been brave enough to embrace. If I care this much, why don't I care to look into why I care? Is there really a God and an intimate meaning in life? I'm not sure I'll ever crack that question, but if I do, it will definitely be around Christmas. Look, there may be people in this room. I know you have people who live next door to you and you work with that sit around this time of the year and wonder, is there more than just this medial job? Is there more than just making money in life? And they will wonder this, and they'll wonder it along these lines. Can I keep doing my life exactly as I'm doing it, living in relationships as I'm doing it, never have to change, and add God with a meaning to my life? And you know what this text is teaching us is the answer is no. Because God wants to know you like a marriage. Like anybody who's been married knows this. You can't be living a life and then add a spouse into it and keep living that life. It's like the moment you get married, life takes a 90-degree turn. And who you are changes. The essence of your person is no longer you. It's you and this person. And God says, that's what the nature of spirituality is like when you know me. Secondly, though, here's what we learn about the anticipation of Christmas, is that there's a depth of betrayal here in this text. And in order to see the, the climax of Christmas, we have to see the depth of betrayal, and then it's really seen in two parts in this text. It's God's heart and, Go, and Gomer's lot. Here's what I mean. God's heart, it says this in verse 1, the people of Israel, go love them. For the people of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Here's what's going on. The people in Israel have given into the pagan nations. Everything that the culture around them loves, they now love. All the values of the culture around them, they've adopted that. Every way of doing life that's successful, they've adopted that as their own way of success. And when it says they love cakes of raisins, that would have been an example of, a, of a, a pagan idol festival where they're celebrating the culture and values of, of things around them, and they would have served these cakes of raisins. And loving that just means they're participating in the cultural loves around them. And God says, in order for you to understand this, Hosea, here's what I want you to see. Go get in a marriage of somebody who will not be faithful to you. It says this, Go marry her, again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now, every time this is given to Hosea, it's always given with a caveat, just as the Lord. And he's telling Hosea, go have your heart broken. Go have your heart betrayed. Go bind yourself to somebody who will not give you back the way you give yourself to them so that you can understand what I'm like. Now, what is this teaching us? Look, whenever you put anything in the center of your life more than God, it's not enough just to say that it's wrong or that it's breaking the law. 
what this text is trying to communicate to us is whenever you put your job in the center of your life, whenever you put your reputation in the center of your life, whenever you put your, your, any of your monetary values in the center of your life, your children in the center of your life, it's like having an affair with It's like having an affair. That's how God wants us to think about it. There was a... Um, uh, a movie a couple years ago with Lady Gaga and Brad, uh, Bradley Cooper where they remade The Star is Born and Lady Gaga uh, wrote this song that they did in the movie where she said this. The song's called I'll Never Love Again. Don't want to feel another touch. Don't want to start another fire. Don't want to know another kiss. No other name falling off my lips. Don't want to give my heart away to another stranger or let another day begin. Won't even let the sunlight in. No, I'll never love again. I'll never love again. You know why that song resonates with you and resonates with everyone around in our culture so much? It's because at the bottom of your soul, you deeply know that you are supposed to have a single devoted heart to somebody. And you want that reciprocated And any time it's not, it is the most crushing thing a soul can endure. And God is trying to communicate to Hosea, this is what it's like. This is what it's like for my people to love things other than me. it, It is like watching your spouse go out continually and put themselves in the heart of somebody else. And it breaks his heart every time. And until you know that kind of devastation, he's saying you'll never know how God feels about sin. But the betrayal, it's not just about God's heart, it's also what happens to Gomer and her lot. Because here's what it says about her in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leech of barley. Okay, here's the picture. That Gomer has continually had an affair over and over and over again and left her husband. And not just left her husband to have a quick afternoon affair, but left her husband for a lifestyle of things that have clearly put her in a bad situation. Because when it says, I bought her, what it's doing is suggesting that she has gotten so deep in the pagan culture that she's now at a public auction. It's possible that she'd gotten into debt. It's possible that she had had um, a slave owner. It's possible that she has a pimp of some kind. And now he's just publicly selling her off. And before we get into what happens and how Hosea treats her, we got to step into this for a second. Because what happens to Gomer is something that's happening to you and I. And that's why we're breaking God's heart. There's also something that's happening to us. Because anytime that you are called to resist other gods and give yourself fully to God Himself, it feels constricting. And it feels like God is asking you to do something that is suffocating and difficult. But here's the reality that you've got to see with Gomer herself. Because what Gomer is giving to herself, or what she's giving herself to, is not freedom. 
and the idea of just being able to choose to do whatever you want. It is in no way a freeing, fun lifestyle. It is a miserable, enslaving lifestyle. Because what happens that we learn from Gomer is that idolatry never gives you what you want, but gives you almost the opposite of what you're pursuing. There's a place in the uh, screw tape letters that C.S. Lewis wrote where Wormwood uh, instructs his disciple to do this. He says, give him an increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. It's more certain, and it is the best, better style. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return is the goal in itself. And what what, what Gomer is teaching you is that anything that you give yourself to more than God, you are doing the same thing with your soul that a sex addict does with their body. Constantly giving yourself to something in hopes that it will love you, but instead always walking, walking away with more burdens, more guilt, and more shame. And the tease is the belief that you, if I just try harder, if I just do more, it will finally give me what I want. But you've, look, you've got to look into Gomer and, and understand what Kant said, which is that give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything. Gomer's lot is that she has run in the name of hoping to be free and found nothing but slavery. And God looks at it and begs her to walk away. The book of Jeremiah anticipates the same thing. He says this in Jeremiah 2, Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, It is no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and their faces, yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you and when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Idolatry always backfires. And it is never going to come and help and save you. Look, when God says, come to me and I will bless you, there's two ways you could read that. One is God is talking to you like a one-to-one exchange. If you live the life I want you to live, then I will in turn give you uh, an exchange and give you the life that you really want. But that, friends, is not Christianity, that's Religion 101, sold to us often by many churches who tell you, if you give God this kind of life, He will give you the life you wanted. That's not what the blessing of God is. Here's what the blessing of God is. If you come to me, I will bless you. It means this. If you give yourself fully to me, I'll be the one thing that will not curse you when you fail me and will not let you down when you find me. What Gomer teaches us is every other thing that you go after, when you don't get it, it will never forgive you. And when you get it, it will never satisfy you, but will flip you on its head and mock you in your shame and guilt. And when God says you go after other gods, He says that's what it's like 
and it feels to him like an affair. Here's what we learn for the coming of Christmas. Look, the intimacy of spirituality is like a marriage. The depth of betrayal is almost like an affair. So third, what do we learn and what do we need most for Christmas? We see the cost of redemption. He says in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. Enter back into that picture. She's at an auction. She's probably stripped naked up front of everybody so they can see fully how this woman who's been moving around town, having multiple affairs, is worth auctioning off. And in walks her husband, who she has left continually. And he begins bidding on her. And he's willing to pay the high price, high price of 15 shekels and loaves of barley. And what it means is, is that Gomer is going to have a spouse who she has continually left, given nothing to that's worth being loved at all, and has somebody come after her and is publicly willing to buy her and look out in front of all of the crowds who may be other men there or who she slept with and says, I'm still willing to buy her back. And probably bought her, took her, and clothed her. And then it says in verse 3, he said, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be with you. He's saying, When you come home with me, you will not ever be with another man. You will be with me, but you will also not be with me immediately. We will have time apart. Now that reads a little bit odd like she's being punished. But here's what Derek Kidner um, says in his commentary. He says, this would have been so tender and loving because Gomer would have understood that when he buys her and takes her home, he's not bringing her home for revenge, nor is he bringing her home to be his slave and basically saying, now you'll do whatever I want. Or now you're going to give me everything and pay me back for all of your betrayal. He's setting up a situation where the end goal in the picture is healing and reconciliation. Kidner says the old habits of hers have to be broken. And he says, you will go through this process and I will go through this process. Why? So that we can have a beautiful marriage together. Think about this. This woman who had had countless affairs with him. He doesn't just bring her home and says, you cook for me while me and my concubines have our own life. Nor does he bring her home and say, you do whatever I tell you to now. He brings her home and sets her up to have as normal and beautiful of a marriage as anybody in that culture would have had. And Hosea goes and does this for his wife. And God says, this is what I'll be like for my people. In verse 4 and 5, he says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without their king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household or gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Look, 
Hosea had to go to the auction to buy her wife back. But God, where does he go to buy his people back? You remember the hymn that we will definitely sing sometime this month? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom, buy back captive Israel. Matthew 1.1, the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The fulfillment of that promise. You know, there's a place when Jesus begins to grow up in John chapter 2 where he is at a wedding with his mother. And they're at this wedding and the, uh, the wine runs out. And his mom turns and says, Jesus, there's no more wine. And he looks at his mom and says, uh, woman, kids don't ever say that to your mom. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's a really odd response to his mom saying, there's no more wine. And he says, this is not my wedding. And what Jesus is thinking about at that wedding is his wedding. And what it will take to serve wine at his wedding. Because what Jesus understands when he's at this one wedding in in Cana is that one day... God has sent him there to be married to his people. And in order for him to be married to his people, it will not be like the wedding that he's observing there at Cana because he's going to marry a bride that will never, ever, ever be faithful to him and will never, ever not love only him, but will turn to any other sort of spouse, even in the midst of that marriage, to love them. And so for him to serve wine at the wedding that Jesus wants to be at, he'll have to spill his blood. And that he will have to be a ransom so that the Apostle Paul, when he talks about who Jesus was for us, he says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, here's what the coming of Christmas means. God looked at his people and wanted us, no matter how spiritually apathetic you are, no matter how dead you've been, no matter how unfaithful you've been even this weekend, he says, I want the depth of a relationship that a marriage has with those people. And here's what it will take. Here's what the cost of making those people mine will take. It will take the most precious gift of all, and I'm willing to buy them back with my son so that they will be Not just people on the back of the bus who finally make it in the basement of the school of spirituality, but they will be the bride with me at the head table. Look, here's the question for you to meditate on for the next couple of weeks. When you think about Christmas and the coming of Christmas, do you look at God as a boss or as a spouse? Ask yourself this litmus test questions. Do you give freely or do you give with gritted teeth? You know, do you, a spouse who you're in love with asks you for something. It's a joy. A boss who you hate working for asks you to give. Feels like it's always done with biting teeth. Look, people who are hard in your life 
Are you open to pursuing them or are you more inclined to just writing them off? Look, if God came to you and said, do what I want and then maybe I'll love you, everything that he asks you to do would be done with anger and frustration, feeling like a boss that you can't ever live up to. But if he's a spouse who came and gave everything and was willing to buy you back in the midst of you running away, how can you not be open to doing that with other people who have been tempted to do that with you? In the early 18th century, there was a man named Robert Robinson who was converted at a George Whitfield um, open field uh, revival. He'd become a Christian and even got into ministry, and one of the powerful things that he began to do is write hymns. And he wrote several hymns that we even still sing today. And several things happened in his life where suffering came about, and he began to struggle, and then he got out of ministry, and then eventually threw his faith away. And as he was in the midst of his own misery, running from God, giving himself to all sorts of things in life, one day he's in a carriage, you know, an 18th century taxi, and a woman gets in the carriage with him, and she's got a hymn book. And out loud, she reads this hymn. Have you heard this before? Come thou fount of every blessing. And the man said, I wrote that hymn. And he said, I would give anything if I knew how to believe that still. And she looked at him and she said, Sir, the streams of mercy are still ever flowing. Do you know what this text says in verse 1? The Lord says, go again and love that woman. If you are dead, here's what Jesus says to you at Christmas. I will come again and again, and again after you. And you know what Hosea says in chapter 6? I love this. As surely as the sun rises, God will come after you. None of you went to bed. None of you went to bed last night with your fingers crossed hoping that the sun would come up this morning. Unassumedly, you know that's happening every day, and Hosea says... In your unfaithfulness, you can be more sure that, the, uh, that God will return to you than the sun will come up in the morning. And Christmas, friends, is about waiting and wanting that. Let's pray. Father, whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, make it a season for us in this church to, to be open to you pursuing us in our infidelity, in all of our spiritual unfaithfulness. You are not a God who came once. You're a God who comes again and again and again and again. Lord, help our hearts to wait, to want and to anticipate that. It's in the precious baby in the manger's name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.